11 with me. We are, if you're visiting with us, we have been studying through the book of Acts from its beginning, and we now find ourselves all the way at the end of Acts chapter 9. And, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 10. Um, and God has inspired some things for us in this, and I want to transfer some of this to the fathers this morning. Uh, I want to give you another gift. We've given you a book gift, but I want to give you another gift. And if I had, if I had room for a long title, I gave you a quick, short title here. If I had a long title room on your page there, it would say Luke's Father's Day gift that keeps on giving. That's what this would be. So look at this, this quick passage here before we get into the longer passage. Acts chapter 11, verse 17. All right, this is, this is shortly after what's happened in Cornelius' house that we get a report of in Acts chapter 10. A little bit of controversy. The Holy Spirit's done something. God has broken out into the Gentile world through the household of Cornelius, and it's kind of raised some concerns for the people who are traditionally involved in religion. That's, it's kind of a no-no. You've crossed cultures here in a way that's not exactly kosher, if you understand what I'm saying. And so Peter's having to explain himself. He's, he's kind of got his back against the wall. And he's explaining himself in Acts chapter 11. That's how that begins. And he concludes with this statement in verse 17. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who, who was I that I could stand in God's way. So in Acts chapter 11, we have an explanation of a gift that was given. One of the men who were in that was Cornelius. He was a father. He received a gift. So I'd like to frame what I'm going to say. This is a message for everybody, although I'm preaching it on Father's Day, but I, I want to particularly ask the fathers to listen carefully. I don't know what you're going to get today by way of gifts. Um, the gift I'm about to describe, there's only one person who can give it to you. And it is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But he has every intention of giving it to every person who belongs to Christ. If you're a believer here and you're a father who's following Christ, the gift in this passage is intended for you. I think for many it remains a mystery. It remains unopened. Right? Don't do that to your kids today. Right? If they give you a gift, make sure you open it. But yet God has given a gift. And, and I want to say this carefully. I do think there are many, many men here this morning who don't understand this gift, who've not taken some time to look at it and study it and consider it. It's a gift that God has so longed to give to his people. And so I want to ratchet you up here a little bit. If you're a man, I said this last week, I want you to listen. You've got notes with you. I want you to be prepared. Please, please take your notes with you. Don't leave them in your chair. We don't go through all the trouble to make these for that reason. So there's a bunch of scriptures. You're never going to probably be in another message where you'll fly through as many scriptures as we're going to fly through today. And, and yes, I am trying to bury you in evidence. I am. I intend for you to be gasping for air when we're done. Because I think this is a gift unexplored and unopened by way too many Christians in their walk with God. 
there are things, I'll put this two passages in your outline. There are things that are mysterious to us about God. There's a lot of things that are mysterious to us about God. And if you're not aware of that, well, you, you just can't be hanging around God at all. So there's this mysterious element of things about God, right? You get passages like this in Deuteronomy 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. That we may do all the words in this law. So there are, there are hidden things that, that none of us can teach on. We can't open a Bible. We can't preach on that this morning. They're hidden things. They're secret things. They belong to God. Maybe in eternity, God reveals those things. But there are revealed things that are available to us. Acts chapter 2, message that Peter preached to explain the day of Pentecost involves some of that. Verse 38, Peter said to them, here's your response to what you've just heard. He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, right? Do you recognize that's the gift that just seems to keep on giving or being given in Acts chapter 11? For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So this, this teaching, what we're looking at today on the Holy Spirit is not hidden mystery. It's not the mysterious things of God that are not revealed. This promise is for you and for your children, the same thing that God said in Deuteronomy 29. The things revealed are for you and for your children. So the things revealed about the Spirit are for you. And for me and for our children, they're revealed for us to know and be affected by. So why do some of these things remain a mystery? Why do we find, we're not going to get too much farther in Acts chapter 19, we find the Apostle Paul walking onto a understood group of believers and, he's, and he says, did, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? It's a very loaded question. You might want to investigate that, that the Apostle Paul and all of his theology was asking these guys that question. It's a little suspicious. And their response, uh, we, we've never even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Wait, wait, these, these are revealed things. These are not mysteries unrevealed. Paul writes again to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, brothers... I would not have you to be ignorant of these things concerning the things of the spirit. And he goes on and teaches about spiritual gifts. So here's the Corinthian believers, a, a church, a gathered bunch of believers coming together to learn and grow and walk out their Christian life. And yet the apostle Paul says, I don't want you to be unaware of this. So here's, here's my premise statement in your outline there. You can be a Christian and be uninformed about things pertaining to the Spirit. You can be that. You can be here this morning with something that we're going to see is so important, and yet it is, it is a mystery to me. It is unexplored. I can't explain it. Remember, by the way, I said last week, let me remind us again, if you're a disciple, take careful notes, because if you're a disciple, you're a disciple maker. 
So whatever you're learning this morning, God expects you to transfer to others. This is not self-contained information. This is you being able to take this, walk out of this meeting and go, huh, I'm supposed to do this. That's what a disciple does. So take careful. How would you explain this to somebody else? Don't be in the place. The Christian universe doesn't need any more Christians that have to wait and point to somebody else to explain things. There's enough of those. They're everywhere. They can't explain anything from the Bible. They can't explain their own life. We don't need any more of those. We need people who can explain the revealed things of God. So if you can't explain it, take this outline, chew on these passages until you can explain this to somebody else and you can minister it to them. But we have as our special guest teacher this morning, Luke. Not my son, Luke, but just want to make sure he was awake. Um, But Luke, the writer of the gospel of Luke, Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, And I want to say that I don't know if some people have ever said this to you, but how many of you here, if you've read the Bible for a while, would consider Luke to be perhaps the foremost theologian on the Holy Spirit? You might not think of Luke that way, right? Look, he's a historian. He's writing about the life of Jesus. He's writing about the early church. He's he's bringing to us all this history. Would you consider him to be a foremost theological writer? on the Holy Spirit? Would you be drawing your understanding about the Holy Spirit from Luke? If you sat in Luke's class, let me just say this, if you sat in Professor Luke's class, it would sound on the Holy Spirit very different than Professor John's class might. Because I don't know if you recognize this when you're reading through passages in the scripture, reading through entire books in the Bible. Not everybody covers everything, number one. Not every book covers everything that there is to be covered. Secondly, not every book and writer emphasizes the same things about the things that they do cover. So if you just opened up certain books and wanted to look at the atonement, you'd find some books provide a volume of information on what was the atonement, what was being accomplished, what is it for the shedding of blood, how is forgiveness tied up in that. And then you'd find other books that say very little about that. You'd find some writers who talk a lot about future things and what's coming and heaven. And you get some writers who don't say hardly anything about that. You get some writers who would explain the scriptures, their inspiration, their use and purpose in our lives and hold up the word of God to us. And then you get other writers who don't say much at all about that. Well, so it is with the spirit. You get Professor John, right, this apostle who's writing out of Revelation. He uses some, some wording and some concepts that are unique to him. Right? A lot of born again, born of the spirit, born of God language is used by John 15 times. He uses the born of elements of the spirit's ministry. Luke never uses that language once. Right? Now, now appreciate this for what it is. Don't do what we do with stuff like this. Well, that means Luke didn't think it was important. No, it means Luke was inspired to write on what he wrote on. And God was writing the Bible, so he knew he had John covering some of these things. So don't pit one against the other. That's not how the scriptures are given to us. Now, Luke is a specialist in some language that others don't make use of. And we need to be carefully learning from Luke in some of these areas. He would be the specialist in language like this. Filled with the Spirit. 
are full of the Spirit. Right? In the Gospel of Luke, in the book of Acts, Luke, our professor, is going to use that phraseology, filled with the Spirit or full of the Spirit, 15 times. He's going to comment on it and present it to us. Did you know the Apostle Paul uses that phrase once? Only once does he mention that. Luke uses the phrase baptized in the spirit or you will be baptized or be baptized in the spirit. He uses that phrase five times. Paul uses it once. Luke uses the phrase receive the spirit six times to describe this event where something's happened, but an exchange has taken place between a holy God and man, and there's been a receiving of the Spirit. Six times he describes that. Now, Paul does use that phrase five times. But if you go study Paul's use of it, Paul uses it while he's making another theological point most of the time. He's trying to talk about this, and he brings this in as a support element. Luke more uses it as a feature of this is what happened to individual believers. And so even they don't use things exactly the same way. So I want to present Luke to you this morning as a qualified, perhaps in these categories, the foremost theologian on the Holy Spirit in these categories. Roger Stronsted quotes another fellow in his book. He says, in a review of Michael Green's book, I Believe in the Holy Spirit, Clark Pinnock rightly observes, here's Clark's words, if you read Luke by himself and listen to him, it seems rather clear that the outpouring of the Spirit he has in mind is not brought into relation to salvation or initiation or incorporation as it is in Paul, but in relation to service and witness. All right, pay careful attention, make an, an interesting note of that. I think it's an accurate observation that when you encounter Luke describing the outpouring of the Spirit, the engagement, the receiving, the filling, you will find the context is about service before God. It's an empowerment. It's an endowment with power. Paul uses the term differently. Than Luke does, in which they're allowed to do that. God is bringing some revelation through each of them. Therefore, Luke does not tie the coming of the Spirit to the salvation event. Even non-charismatics like Green, sensitive and open as they are to the renewal, seem unable to grant that the Pentecostals may understand Acts better than they do. Because Pentecostal theologians would tend to see Luke's presentation as another activity of the Spirit, sometimes called a second work of the Spirit. I. Howard Marshall says Luke was entitled to his own views. And the fact that they differ in some respects from those of Paul should not be held against him at this point. On the contrary, he is a theologian in his own right and must be treated as such. So look in Acts chapter 10 with me. Where where is Luke going to take us in the realm of things revealed about the spirit that are for us and for our children? Things that none of us can afford to have as unknown elements of our walk with God. Things that we just ascribe to, well, it's kind of mysterious, it's kind of weird, it's kind of stuff that I don't really understand, so I'm just going to let the special people take care of that. Now, this is revelation given to us so that we might transfer it to other disciples, particularly fathers, to our children. So Acts chapter 10, 
just run a quick little mention here of the Spirit's activity on our way to this last engagement. Verse 19, while Peter was pondering the vision, remember Peter spoke a few weeks ago about the sheet that was lowered from heaven and the vision that the apostle Peter had. While Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Right? Can I just install some expectation here? Because Luke is writing about the activity of the Spirit. How important is it for you and for me to create our expectations about how the Spirit is and what he wants to do from this book rather than from the book of the person sitting next to you in the pew right now? They're writing a book too, right? You're writing a book. I'm writing a book about the Holy Spirit. You read my book and you don't see some of this stuff. You're writing a book about the Holy Spirit. And I bump into your life and I'm looking for this stuff and it's like, hmm. Well, I don't, I don't see anything like that. I don't see a lot about filled with the Spirit, baptizing the Spirit. I, don't, I guess that stuff just really doesn't happen. But it happens here. This is the book to read. This is the inspired revelation from God. Let's read this book. Let's develop an expectation here that the way in which God interacted by the Spirit with Peter to lead him, God might do that as well. He does it with others. does it with Philip. Philip ends up at the Ethiopian's uh, traveling caravan there because the Holy Spirit led him to do that. The Holy Spirit leads us and speaks to us. Isn't that a good thing to know as you walk through your daily life? Uh, Look at what, what Peter finds important to present. He comes and preaches in verse 37. He's preaching to Cornelius' household. They're getting an explanation for the gospel. And this is what he says in his presentation. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. All right, so Peter finds that point of importance to preach in his presentation of the gospel to this audience. It matters that you and I have a revelation and an understanding that when you look at the life of Jesus Christ, it occurs because he was anointed with power from the Holy Spirit in God's plan. Now, listen, theologically, there's a lot there that never gets explained. He's the son of God. He's sat on the throne. He's got some power, right? He created everything that's ever been created. He is the one with authority over all of creation. And he comes and installs himself in a human body with probably long hair and a beard and wearing a robe and walking around. And Jesus is inside this person. Jesus, can't you pull this stuff off? Don't you find it interesting that when he takes the form of a man, He begins his ministry by being anointed by the Holy Spirit. And it's that activity that gives account for why all these things took place through his life. Theologically, I don't see a reason for that. It's not as though he wasn't God and he needed a booster shot. Can you see a reason for that? Unless it reveals something to us about what it looks like to be a man receiving power from God. 
Don't think in the theological realms of heaven and the writing of things that God put together. Jesus was critical that, that it be done that way for Jesus, except that maybe he's trying to teach something critical to us and what needs to be done with us. And I think that's very much what's happening as we'll see in a moment. And then we get to end of chapter 10, verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, he's still preaching to them, the Holy Spirit fell on, notice the words that Luke gives us, fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. How did they know that the gift of the Spirit was poured out? Because they were speaking in tongues and hearing them extolling God or prophesying probably. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Now, let me just say this, and I say this quickly because I'm not trying to live in this point. A lot is happening in Cornelius' household. A lot theologically, I'll say it that way, is happening in a moment in Cornelius' household. A lot. A lot that doesn't happen in other events in the book of Acts. Right? You've got, you've got regenerative work taking place here. You've got believing taking place. You've got faith taking place. You've got repentance taking place. You've got baptism taking place. And you've got this falling on dimension of the spirit taking place. That doesn't always happen simultaneously. In this moment, it does. Now, that informs us a lot about what can happen. But it doesn't always happen that way. Because you're going to find people in the book of Acts where Luke, same writer, reveals people getting saved and none of this happens. All over the book of Acts. People got saved all over the place. It didn't always come with so much fanfare, if you can let me say it that way. Right? Fanfare fell all over the 12 and the uh, folks in the upper room and they came out onto the street in Pentecost. They preached the gospel and then 3,000 got saved. No fanfare. Just says they, what must we do? Well, repent and believe and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But there's no report beyond that they responded in repentance and faith. Uh, Lydia, in Acts chapter 16, the Holy Spirit's going to open her heart to believe, and that's what all she does. She believes and she's baptized. Sergius Paulus, the proconsul in Cyprus, he believes, and that's it. He believes. There's several, several occurrences where people are saved and believe, but, but there's this little unique thing that gets hung on here, and I'll come back to it in a moment. They knew they'd received the gift of the Spirit because they spoke in tongues and exalted or prophesied and spoke of the great things of God. Listen, no one here is ready to go down this road. Anybody ready to go down this road? This is how you know if somebody got saved. They spoke in tongues and they prophesied. Is anybody ready to go down that road theologically? I hope you're not. I hope you're not sitting here today saying, I'm calling into question everybody's salvation. Everybody who claims to be saved. Did you, did you speak in tongues and prophesy? Because that's what happened with Cornelius and his house. When they got saved, they spoke in tongues and prophesied. Lots of people got saved in the book of Acts. There's no report that they spoke in tongues and prophesied. So I don't think you want to link speaking in tongues and prophesying to salvation. 
But they received the gift of the Spirit here. So there's more than one thing going on in Cornelius' house, right? So let's walk through, and I'm gonna, I'm, you're going to sprint through more passages than you've ever probably sprinted through in, in one sermon with me here. So we're going to run through Luke's use of language, and we're going to learn from Professor Luke what he has to say about two things. I'm going to highlight these, and these are going to be up on the screen here, so you can just follow. The highlighting is going to be the descriptions and encounters that Luke presents. These are the descriptions, the words he uses about the encounter between God and man. And, but notice, always followed by the results or the given activity. The thing that should form in us some sense of expectation. This encounter happened and this thing took place after it. Then this encounter happened and this thing took place after it. So if you and I are looking at this encounter, we should form some expectations about what seems to come out of that encounter. What's the result of the encounter? What's the impact? What do they do after they have this encounter? Right? So we're going to underline those things in the passage. We're going to highlight the encounters. All right, Luke chapter 1. Here we go. Thank you. Luke 1, verse 67. This is early in the gospel of Luke. Luke is recording, and his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember, Luke is a specialist in these words. He uses it all the way into Luke chapter 1. He was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied. Right? So you have Zechariah experiencing this exchange between him and God that fills him with the Spirit. What's the outcome? He prophesies as a result. Luke 2 Verse 25, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was what? Was upon him. Again, Luke language, upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit. So you have direction taking place here in his life. That's the outworking. Into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God and said, right? So now you have a saying event. So you have this man's filled with the spirit, led by the spirit, and then he's going to speak as a result in this setting. Luke chapter three, verse 16, John answered them all saying, I baptize you. This is John the Baptist. I baptize you with, with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. All right, Luke chapter 3, verse 21. And when Jesus, who had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice from heaven saying, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Luke chapter 4, verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Spirit returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. So the outworking of Jesus being filled with the Spirit was the leading of the Holy Spirit to take him from one place to another. And again, Luke is intentionally associating these things together. You have encounters, you have outworking. You have encounters, you have outworking. You have encounters, you have outworking. Luke chapter 4, verse 17, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to do what this what's the effect of the anointing the upon-ness of the spirit to proclaim good news to set captives free to release those who are oppressed right there's action words following this encounter of the spirit upon him martin lloyd jones says our lord was there beginning to enter on his public ministry 
He had lived as a man. He had worked as a carpenter. But now, at the age of 30, he was setting out in his ministry. Though he was still the eternal Son of God, he needed to receive the Spirit in his fullness. And God gave him the Spirit. Now listen carefully. In other words, our Lord himself could not act as witness and as preacher and as testifier to the gospel of salvation without receiving this endowment of the Spirit. And that is the purpose of the baptism with the Holy Spirit, Martin Lloyd-Jones says. So you have Jesus portraying this endowment with power. And then look at the next passage here in Acts chapter 1, verse 4. Look at, do you get a sense as to why Jesus says this now to his disciples? And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And do you, do you see something here? You have Jesus inaugurating his ministry by going to John the Baptist and the Holy Spirit is going to come upon him uniquely from that moment on, fill him with the Spirit and give him into ministry. Now it's the disciples' turn. It's their turn to go. And Jesus says, you're commissioned to go, but do not go until this happens to you. Same thing that happened to him. Same language, same type event is now being set in their lives as well. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll be my witnesses, right? So what's the outworking of this coming upon? Well, it's, it's being witness there into the ends of the earth in a powerful way. Now, I want to collect a few things together. This one event in Acts chapter 2 is going to be described by Luke with a collection of words, right? You already saw the first one, chapter 1, verse 4 or 5. Baptized with the Spirit. Acts 1, verse 8, coming upon, right? So same event, two different descriptions, same event, Acts 2, 4. And they were filled with the Spirit. Third use of the word to describe the same event and began to speak in other tongues, right? So the outworking of being filled with the Spirit in Acts chapter 2 was that they spoke in tongues. Acts chapter 2, verse 17. And in the last days, it shall, it shall be, this is Peter explaining what happened. God declares that I will pour out my spirit. Fourth descriptive word to describe what happened at Pentecost. Right, do you see all those words? This is Luke's specialty area. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Here's the outworking. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. All right, so this has been poured out in Acts chapter 2. The disciples have experienced and received this. We move to Acts 4. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said. All right, so he's filled again with the Holy Spirit. Do you see that? Right? How many of you know that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2? Yet the gift that keeps on giving is again given. And he was filled with the Spirit again and said... Right? So again, you have this dynamic of this encounter, this receiving that's being worked out in some way. In this point, he is saying something. Acts 4, verse 31. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all 
filled with the Holy Spirit. All? Yes, all. Weren't these the same guys that were in the upper room that were filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost? Yes, it was. And yet here they are again being filled with the Spirit and continued to, what's the outworking? Speak the word with boldness, right? The, the Spirit encounters them. They encounter the Spirit this way and they speak the word with boldness. Acts chapter 8 this is, a, this is a rich verse, and I'm flying through here, so I'm not going to stop and give you a tour. Verse 14, now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Again, Luke is a specialist in these words. Luke is the specialist in these words. So he's describing something that, that's to take place here. They came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit for he had not yet fallen on. Again, Luke's words. Something's happened to them, but not this. Well, what's happened to them? But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Well, that's problematic. If you go back and you read, you have Philip. Remember Philip's one of the guys sent from Jerusalem? Uh, Philip, I, I think it's safe for us to assume that Philip understood the gospel and preached the gospel and did a good job. Everybody with me on that? I think we can assume that he did, right? If you back up in Acts chapter eight, verse 12, when they believed Philip, that's a big word theologically. When they believed Philip as he preached good news, that's the gospel about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. All right, you remember all the things that happened with Cornelius? All right, so here's part of them. They are believing they are listening and they are believing. It's safe for us to assume that they have also repented and they have been baptized. But, but they have not received the gift of the Spirit yet. That is still yet to happen to them. Uh, have they received the Spirit in any way at all? <clears throat> all right, theologically, would they have been able to believe apart from the Spirit? No. Right, so, you know, can I install two words here? They were in your outline. I'm trying to skim past them quick. There was an internal indwelling work of the Spirit that took place in their lives that enabled them to have faith and believe the gospel that Philip had brought to them. But they had not yet received. Right? Then verse 17. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. This is Luke's language. He uses this kind of description for this event. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he, he offered money. He wanted a piece of that action. What did he see? Well, he saw the outworking of the Spirit. The Spirit came and there was an outworking of the Spirit there. And he saw that. Then in Acts chapter 10 Verse 37, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea. He explains the anointing of Jesus again. Let me skip to Acts chapter 10, verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the, the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out. You hear all Luke's language here being used? Why did he know that? For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Now, no one, no one knew that the guys in Acts chapter 8 were believers because they heard them speaking in tongues and extolling God. They knew somehow they were believers. They believed Philip. And yet later, they were going to receive something a little bit different. 
Luke describes. A little different event is going to happen to them. Now, Cornelius gets it all. Right? He's got a one-time visit going on in his house. It's all coming right there. Right? Don't, don't, don't only associate the Holy Spirit with tongues, prophecy, speaking. Because anybody that you see come into new birth, that's John's you must be born again language. You must be born of the spirit. So this event that Luke describes and the born again experience, the indwelling of the spirit by John, right? You just get two different professors teaching us about the activity of the spirit. But Luke seems to clearly be saying, if you want to know about this one, this is the kind of stuff that comes with this one, different than what John was describing. Acts 11, verse 15, as I begin to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them. And again, he says that was them being baptized with the Holy Spirit, Acts 13, 9. But Saul, who was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently and he began to minister. So now you got Paul being repeatedly filled as well. Acts 13, 51, but they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. I think the joy was the outworking of the filling of the Spirit in their life. Acts 9, this one's going to be carefully unpacked one day when we get there. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Paul is making a giant assumption about these men. Whatever you think they are, if you've read your Bible, you know there's a question. Were these guys really disciples of Jesus Christ? That question gives away Paul thinks they were. And he's asking a very curious question here. So you can have believed, but not have received Luke's language of receiving the Holy Spirit. That's Paul asking these guys this question. Now he comes to find out they've got some deficiency in their belief. They said, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit, Luke, came on them. And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. Back to back now, this event. This is not Cornelius' house. This is slow motion. Cornelius' house, you can't take it apart. Just, boom, the thing happens and all of it just happens. And you kind of can't. All right, well, here you have this slow motion event taking place. You have the presentation of them being more accurately understanding about Christ, not just the baptism of John. You have them baptized. And then you have another moment. I don't know. Hey, if you want to get, you know, if you want to stick in some extra biblical stuff, people like to do that in that passage. Let's say they paused for lunch. Took a nap, you know. If, if it had been this apostle Peter, they'd have taken a nap in the afternoon and we'll come back later. And you can receive the spirit later. I'm tired. Um, all right, so we don't know what kind of delay is taking place here, but we know that they're presented as different occurrences. And he lays his hands on them and they receive receive Luke's language, the Holy Spirit. How do we know they received the Holy Spirit? Well, they spoke in tongues and they prophesied. Martin Lowe-Jones says, Paul baptized these men at Ephesus. Then, having finished that, he laid his hands upon them and they received the baptism of the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in tongues. The two things are separate and 
distinct. All right, you need to do some homework here because I know this is probably challenging some of us here. Um, Luke's language is empowerment language, is falling upon language, is suddenly this came language. That's what he describes. That's Luke's language. It's different than the other writers in the New Testament use it, but, but Luke is a specialist, if you will, in trying to get us to see something about this receiving and coming upon and falling upon and filling and outpouring dimension of the Spirit's ministry. Now, let me just show you this real quickly. He's not creating this concept. This is not new in the Bible. It's actually quite familiar, right? Quick taste, Exodus 31. We've got a bunch of passages here, but I'm just going to quickly run you through The Lord said to Moses, see, I've called by name Bezalel. And this is when God has decided he's going to build a temple. He's going to take an offering. He's going to build this incredible temple where he's going to dwell amongst his people. So God's up to something. That's very important. Verse three, and I have filled him with the spirit of God. Right? So Luke's not the originator of this language. He just is the New Testament specialist of it. With ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, All right, here's the outworking. Bezalel is filled with the spirit. The outworking is to divide artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Oholiab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability. How did he do that? By filling them with the spirit. You see something very important here. So the filling of the spirit here is about enablement. New Testament uses the word, you will receive power. You will receive abilities. You will receive an endowment with an ability to do something. In this context, the ability to do had to do with building the temple. In the New Testament, it has to do with building the church. But it's enablement. That's what Luke's language is. That's what this is. Numbers 11, verse 16, Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me 70 men of of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, Bring them to the tent of meeting and let, them, and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and walk with you there. And I will take some of the spirit that is where? On you, Moses, and I will put it on them. So there's just some kind of this arrangement, right? Moses got to cheat. I know he's an impressive guy, but he got to cheat, The spirit of God himself was upon Moses in a way that nobody else had it going on. But there came a day when the good of the people needed that spirit to be on more than Moses. So God picks up a portion of it, places it upon others. And now they have it upon their lives to enable them to lead and care for the people in a unique way. Verse 25. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied. So when you get to the New Testament, you find out the Spirit comes in these unique ways and people prophesy. They're not inventing that. That, This is very common in the Old Testament. Numbers 24, Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe. And the Spirit of God came upon him and he took up his discourse and said, all right, so Spirit comes, he speaks. For Samuel 10, when they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him. This is speaking of Saul. And the Spirit of God rushed upon him and he prophesied. All right, skip down Second Chronicles 20. The spirit of the Lord came on Jehaziel. Right, this is a big meeting that's taking place. A big threat's come against the nation of Israel from three different kings surrounding them and about to take them over. Everybody's freaking out. They call a prayer meeting. 
And people show up. A little different than when we call prayer meetings. But anyway, they showed up for the prayer meeting. And the Spirit of God falls upon somebody in the back back there named Jehaziel. An encounter and a unique, an impartation of the Spirit takes place. And he speaks and it becomes a revelation of God. Prophetic word for what they're to do in response to this situation. Jesus describes his ministry framed out of the Old Testament insights in the prophets. Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Right? So what Jesus is describing about his own ministry has already been foretold and it's already using language that's common. Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. This is what Jesus quoted. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news, to bind up, to proclaim liberty in the opening of the prison, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. All right? Luke's language is not new. Luke's not breaking into new concepts, but he is uniquely describing encounter outworking, encounter outworking, encounter outworking over and over and over again. And the language he uses is filled with, came upon, fell upon, baptized. This is the language he uses in this. Now, I want to move us toward the urgency of what, what this, this matters to us. This matters greatly to us. I'm going, to, I'm going to specifically apply this this morning in a moment to the fathers here. But obviously, this is for every believer. This matters for every, every believer. This encounter, exchange, receiving of the Spirit this way that it results in outworking is an important dimension to every believer's walk with God. It's very, very important. Now, let, me, let, me, let me tell you why I think this is very hard to receive. I don't mean conceptually. I mean to actually experience it. Because whenever you see this happening in the scriptures, it's because God is doing something or about to do something and natural man will not be able to do it. And so it's going to take God coming in, cheating. God's going to come in and cheat the system. God's going to bring the kingdom that is to come into this kingdom right now and going to give us an advantage over the kingdom of this world. Going to give us an advantage over the powers of sin in this world. That's what the Spirit's doing in this impartation. But in every one of these moments, God is doing something. And the people are doing that with him. That's what they're doing. I started to call this for the men especially... um, Don't domesticate the undomesticated spirit. How many of you recognize that we can hear this? We're, we're American suburbanites. So we hear a message like this and we try to figure out, okay, you know, I don't know. Do I, do I really need the spirit to rush upon me to, to replant some plants in the yard this week? I don't know. You see, I just need the power of God. I got to go to Walmart. I need the power of God. Come on, Lord, fill me. Oh, Keith said something about feeling. Lord, how do you receive that? I've got to face people at Walmart. Um, I think we have domesticated God. I think we have stopped taking kingdom risks and kingdom assignments. When you see God do stuff like this, filling 
is for following. That's, what, that's why it happens. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. Witnesses, martyrs. You're going to step out and do stuff that's going to take more than what you could ever bring. And I'm going to show up in a powerful way and you're going to say things and do things and be filled with a power that's not your own. Oh, and by the way, some of you are going to end up dead. It, it, was, it was that kind of a setting was not this domesticated setting of our lives where we take no risks and we do very little ministry. We don't step into people's worlds and we're not seeking to witness in in awkward, uncomfortable ways. And yet, we want to receive the Spirit. We want to have these encounters. Listen, filling is for following. Filling is for the purpose of being a risk taking, disciple-making, follower of Jesus Christ. That's why this was going to be necessary. God was building his house. You're going to need skill beyond your own. God is still building his house, and you're going to need skills beyond your own to do that. I'm not saying God doesn't join us. Remember, there's many dimensions of the Spirit here. Luke's kind of focusing on one. John's got some other ones. Paul's talking a lot about the fruit of the Spirit and transformation of the Spirit. Okay, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not learning so much from Paul this morning as I'm learning from Luke. So I, I don't want you to walk away from here going, so wait, wait, so, so that means the Holy Spirit's like not involved in just my day-to-day routines? Is that what you're trying to say? No, I, I think the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience. Hey, hey, take that into your homes. Domesticate it. Use it. Let it transform you. But what Luke is describing is an event for the purpose of power. It's an endowment. It's enablement. We've got to let Luke speak to us. He's got a right to speak. He's got something to say. And we need to be able to receive it and, and, and not garble a bunch of things together in a way that makes John's unique voice get lost and Paul's get lost. God gave inspiration. I think he's given some to Luke here that's unique. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the New Testament gives us a picture and a portrayal of what a Christian should be. And obviously in that connection, nothing is more important than that we should understand the doctrine of the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Right? Can you just read that again for the shock value of nothing else? Nothing is more important than we should understand, right? The revealed things belong to us. We should understand the doctrine of the baptism with the Holy Spirit. All right, I I chose Martin Lloyd-Jones to quote on purpose today because he's edgy, And some of you might say, yeah, and a little extreme. Yes. Yes, he is. If you've read much of Martin Lloyd-Jones, and there's a lot to read, because he was a prolific speaker and writer in England, had a significant impact on the body of Christ, continues to. He is an extreme theological writer. He is a doctrinal writer. Volumes of his are preserved as a pastor and theologian. He, came, he comes to a point in his life with all that he knows where he lifts his eyes and he looks at the body of Christ, I believe his own church as well, Westminster Chapel. He says, we've got a lot of right concepts, but we are missing something. That's where he found himself. Towards the end of his life, He saw a church that lacked power, that lacked reality. They had been taught well. This man did not misteach his church. 
we are still reading the volumes of works that he did in Romans and in Ephesians, all throughout the scriptures and expository preaching. His volumes on Acts, it's like a, it's breaking the bank for me to own them just to read them. I've got like four volumes. He hadn't even gotten past Acts chapter 7 and four volumes. You think I'm moving slow. Lloyd-Jones had something to say to the body of Christ. At the end of his life, though, this is a wise man observing some things. I don't sincerely believe, I don't believe, he can, if he was here, he'd argue me into the ground, I'm sure. I don't believe that the baptism in the Holy Spirit is the crown doctrine of all doctrines. I, I don't believe that. I don't believe the, Holy, the scriptures would support that. I don't know that he's trying to say that, but this is what he is saying. He, see, he sees it missing. I don't think he saw an absence of justification by faith. I don't think he saw an absence of that. He taught that extensively. Salvation by grace alone. Right, those were the word emphasis back then. He saw deficiency here. He spent time addressing it. He said, this is not only that we may enjoy the full blessing of the Christian salvation, but also more urgently because of the times in which we live we see the Christian church in a more or less parlous condition. That means dangerous or unsafe. Ineffective in a world of sin and shame, a world which is increasingly manifesting in a horrifying manner, godlessness and hatred and antagonism to God. This is a man whose ministry was in the mid-90s, uh, mid-1900s. He didn't live in our day. You imagine what he would have said about the day that we live in if he's saying this after the 50s. There is only one hope for such a world, and that is a revived church. So, the most urgent need of the hour is revival in the Christian church, and that means revival in individual Christians. There is no such thing as the church apart from people. So we start with personal. And through that, we see how the general can be affected. Right? We start with personal. We start with the need for this reality to be the description of my reality and yours. And we don't just start with a general statement about the church. I need to start here with this message in my own life and say, Lord, what does normal look like for me? Would Luke look at my life and say, not normal? Would Luke look at your life and say, not normal? Would he seek to change? The, would, are you open to looking at your own life? Saying, look, we just went through a bunch of verses. Does, does that dimension of the spirit describe my experience? I'm walking with God and in God that way. What Jones's grandson, Christopher Catherwood, writes in the introduction for this book, Joy Unspeakable. He says the concern that he had about the increasing aridity in the lives of many Christians around him, right? Aridity, awkward word, right? It means, it means dullness, lacking interest or excitement. That's what that word means. Lloyd-Jones looked up and he saw Christians who were dull, they lacked interest and passion and excitement in their lives. Seeing this, Catherwood says, caused him to change both his views and his emphasis. 
he became increasingly burdened to pray for revival. Indeed, the desire for revival was to dominate the rest of his ministry. This is a man who saw the value in preaching and proclaiming accurate doctrine. He never apologized for that, but he looked up at the church one day and he said, I don't see power. I see dullness. I see people who lack interest. I don't see excitement. I don't see delight. I don't see passion. Something's missing. And he began to devote himself to saying, Lord, would you restore that to your church? Would you restore that to your church? And he preached on revival, wrote a great book on revival. If you ever get a hold of it, it's a worthy read. Listen. Lloyd Jones in, in this particular book jumps up and down all over with as much weight as he can possibly jump on the idea that when you become saved as a Christian, you get it all. He, he jumps on that idea and says that idea has killed dimensions of the ministry of the spirit. Now I know sometimes we're here and we, we kind of have that idea that we've got this understanding of, well, wait, well, but to be a Christian, you know, you, you get the Holy Spirit to be, you can't be a Christian without the Holy Spirit. So, all right, Luke's language, John's language, right? Put it all together. Does your experience of the spirit sound like what Luke would describe? I'm not saying every moment, every event, people remember people got saved and it didn't look like this all the time. But there were events in their lives where it did. Are you familiar with the power of God coming upon your life in a weird way? Are you familiar with being in a setting where God comes and suddenly you find yourself desiring to say and with the guts to say something that you just didn't have before? Are you in a meeting where there's impressions that you share that are prophetic in nature? Do you, do you, do you speak in tongues? Do you experience the Holy Spirit this way? For Luke, that was normal. Now listen, I don't know, maybe we're here and we've got some idea that, well, the indwelling of the Spirit, I've got the indwelling of the Spirit. Hey, when I got saved, I got the Spirit, man. I don't don't know. I don't know how I go with what you're saying. Listen, can, can you just do this with me? Can you not fall in love with an indwelling theology and an arid life? Can you please not do that? Can you please not wait until Jesus returns to walk around with the theology that says, I've got it all, but my life is arid. It's dull. I lack intensity and eagerness and risk-taking and faith and compelling and earnestness and desire and delight. I don't have those things, but I got it all, brother. Really? Come on. Really? I know, you know what? Hey, listen, I know it's, it's easier. It's easier for me theologically. I can button up the get it all doctrine a little easier than what I'm trying to tell you today. I can. I, just can, I can look at the scriptures and present several of them to you and it can button that down. But I have to agree. There's a dimension that Luke is describing here that the church needs. That the church desperately needs. An encounter with God, whatever you want to call it. You're allergic to baptizing the Holy Spirit? Did somewhere you got a bad experience somewhere? You know, you got a freaky Pentecostal relative? I don't know. All right, well, use fall upon, came upon, rushed upon, filled, poured out. 
I mean, Luke's got a big vocabulary all describing the same thing. And what's clear is when that event happens, something pops out of you. I'm not even going to tell you what has to pop out. Okay. I'm cool. If you, if you just turn into boldness unleashed, I mean, just you're climbing the walls for Jesus. You're just so obnoxiously bold. All right. Hey, I'll take that. I can make a case for it. I see it in scripture, but aridity, I can't make a case for dullness, lack of interest, lack of pursuit, lack of earnestness. I can't make a case for that. It's not normal. It's become our normal. It's not Luke's normal. If he were our guest speaker today, he would connect us with something that might be very far removed from what we have grown to call normal. All right, here's how I want to close. I want to pray for fathers specifically. You know, and I, I prepare for a message like this. You guys know, I, I, don't have a, I don't have a problem bringing people forward for prayer. And if you've been in this church for any length of time, you have, you have been invited to stand up here. Uh, you've been admonished to stand up here. You've been encouraged to stand up here. Peter has come and found you because you won't come stand up here. Um, all right, so we've got no problem with, with the reality. Let's lay hands on people. Let's believe God in this moment. Let's, let's do this thing. I got no problem with that. And when I'm seeing a message like this coming, that's my natural tendencies. I'm going there. Except for today. I don't believe we earn this encounter with God. I don't believe that's, it's earnable. I don't think it is. But this will be a helpful word for fathers and it's going to guide me a little bit in terms of not doing that right now. And it's this man named Cornelius. Fathers, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion, what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually. I don't, I don't believe Cornelius, and Peter said this in said this in his message. Cornelius didn't earn God doing anything in his life by any of these acts. He was doing these things because God had done a work in him to do them. But this day, the spirit shows up in his house. I don't think Cornelius skidded into the meeting half distracted, wondering, who almost didn't make it, huh? Is there a seat real quick? I had to rush in to get a parking space real fast. I wonder how long this dude's going to go today because, man, I got so, it's Father's Day. There's so much, I don't even have a card yet. Uh, okay, uh, I'm Cornelius. Hey, uh, hey, Peter, great to meet you, man. It's so good to have you here with us. Peter, right? Yeah, okay. Uh, so what's up? What you got? Yeah. Uh, hey, can, can you take the, yeah. I'm sorry, Peter, go ahead. That's what the church can feel like on Sunday morning. I don't think that's Cornelius. I think there's something in this man, like a vacuum, drawing things into his life. So much so that God's going to send Peter, going to give him a revelation, going to lower a sheet from heaven to send Peter to this man. I'm sending someone to you. I want you to experience me. I think this man is eager to experience God. The message doesn't even get finished. 
And I'd love to have that ministry. No altar time. The altar time came at about 75% of the message. Boom! And the people began to experience the Spirit. Listen. And if you're here this morning and you'd say, hey, that word arid wasn't my word when I came in, but yeah, that's me. I find my walk with God dull. Just do. Not a lot of motivation, not a lot of interest, not a lot of excitement. It just isn't. Oh, Lord, pour out your spirit on arid ground. How about if fathers lead the way? Fathers, how about if you lead the way? How about if you...